Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 16th, 2017, at around 3.30pm GMT. It was just took place in the days after the Charlottesville White Supremacy March and terrorist attack. So, if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. For those of you who haven't done so already, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and to tweet us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. While you're at it, you might as well also check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. There you can find information about everything we get up to here at Turk. Included amongst this is information about our research, our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, and our exciting new book series with IB Taurus. But first, it is time for today's guest. I'm delighted and honoured to welcome Professor Laura Dugan onto the pod. Laura is in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Maryland. Her research examines the efficacy of violence, prevention and intervention policy and practice on violent outcomes, especially terrorism. She also designs methodological strategies to overcome data limitations inherent in the social sciences. Professor Dugan is a co-principal investigator for the Global Terrorism Database which I'm sure many of you have benefited from, and the Government Actions in Terrorist Environments dataset. She holds a doctorate in public policy and management and a master's in statistics from Carnegie Mellon University. And she has co-authored Putting Terrorism into Context, Lessons Learned from the World's Most Comprehensive Terrorism Database, along with more than 60 journal articles and book chapters. Book chapters. Her work has influenced terrorism and counterterrorism researchers and practitioners the world over. So it really is a privilege to welcome her onto today's episode. Laura, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Joe, thank you. I'm honored to be here. How did you get involved in this area of research? What what was it that that brought you to to research terrorism and counterterrorism? Well, my career has been a long and windy road, and I will spare you the beginning, but I can tell you that um, I, I um, had my, my doctoral dissertation was looking at the influences of domestic violence resources on intimate partner homicide. Um, my, as you mentioned in the introduction, my, my doctorate is in public policy, so I've, I've always been very intrigued by how policy influences violent outcomes. And... Um, one of the things that came out in in the research I was doing on intimate partner homicide was that efforts that we make to um, to reduce violence can sometimes actually create more problems than than they solve. And so, um, particularly if they're not strategically or carefully implemented, so underfunded domestic violence resources could actually um, put a woman at greater risk and therefore be related to, to more homicide as she seeks to leave a relationship. And so that, that was the, the nature of my research um, prior to getting involved in, in terrorism research. And, and basically what, what had happened was um, I had been doing a lot of research on violence against women and different types of victimization, and I was kind of burning out um, because um, it's a pretty it's – a, it's a pre- pretty intense topic, uh, more intense, I think, than terrorism, um, in that um, 
you know, people who are supposed to, to love you are the ones that are actually perpetrating the violence against. And so, so I was, I was really starting to burn out and, and right around this time, this is, um, shortly after, um, the September 11th attacks, uh, Gary LaFree approached me and asked if I'd be interested in a small side project of, um, computerizing a bunch of index cards that documented global terrorism, um, events from 1970 to 1997. And, and I have a lot of experience working with large data sets. Um, one of the things that, that's really exciting for me um, is to create data sets to uncover patterns that had never before been seen. And so, so this was kind of an intellectual um, challenge for me. Um, something that I thought would be a lot more exciting, and it wasn't violence against women, so it, it was a little, it was more impersonal. Um, now, as I had mentioned, my research is really, I, I, I really want to see what kind of, how policy influences different types of violent behavior, and so I saw um, creating this database as a real opportunity to, to, to look and see what's actually going on with terrorism. Um, while there had been some terrorism databases prior to that point, all, all of them had focused um, almost exclusively on transnational terrorism. And so um, there, there's, you know, there was information out there about what terrorism looked like, but it completely ignored what was going on um, with perpetrators in the same country. And, and as we found out, as we started to, to um, create the, what, what became the Global Terrorism Database, um, about one only about one in seven attacks at that time were actually transnational. Most of them were domestic. And so, so that, that's really how it, I got into it. So as I said, it started more as an exercise, but, but um, both Gary LaFree and I are, are doing, conducting research almost exclusively in this area now. And, and we never really got back to what we were doing before that. It's amazing. You, you, you introduced the GTD as a small side project at the beginning. It's, it's certainly become a lot more than that and has become hugely influential. But I want to, to before we get into discussions about that, I want to, to get into that, um, that research that, that you were doing on, um, on domestic violence. And I can completely understand how that would lead to, to burnout. And just listening to, to you talking about how interventions can sometimes cause more harm than good. It's sort of, you can see that coming through in your research, especially I'm thinking of the article that we'll discuss later that you did with Erica Chenoweth about moving beyond deterrence, the effectiveness of raising the expected utility of abstaining from terrorism in Israel. You can see that those similar themes coming through. But one of the things I ask every interviewee to to do uh, before, um, before coming on the pod is to, to send on a list of piece of research that influenced you. And for anyone listening who wants to read more extensively this research, uh, the research that Laura's picked and all of our guests have picked are all contained on our website. And the first one that you picked is from 1989 by Brain and Williams, exploring the effect of resource availability and the likelihood of female perpetrated homicides. I would suspect this came from your original uh, incarnation as, of, as a researcher. And how did this uh, influence you, and how does it still influence you today? So, I, I this this particular ardor, article was handed to me by my graduate advisor when I was a graduate student, and it's because um, he had observed that 
um, when looking for a data set to, to use for my first research paper, which was to be a methodological piece that, that was to identify um, program effects using a bounded model that, that was developed by Chuck Mansky, um, every, inter every program that I was able to identify um, from um, our ICPSR, which is a consortium of, that, that collects data, um, was related to domestic violence. And so um, he noticed my interest in that, and he showed me this article, and he said, um, read this article and, and tell me if, if you can make it better. <laughs> and so, so, which was like the most awesome assignment that somebody can give a graduate student. Um, but my advisor is um, Dan, Daniel Nagan, and um, that particular meeting where he handed me this article basically changed the course of my career because that 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 article led me to my first research paper and my my dissertation and it it it, it got me involved in a um, consortium on violence research which now like basically led me to becoming a criminologist today um, people in my graduate program um, go into many different disciplines and, and only a, a handful would go into criminology um, now we had some of the top criminologists in the country and in, in that program but still um, still it was, it was because of this particular article and and just just briefly um, it's it looks at the effects of resource availability it really looks at domestic violence services on female perpetrated homicide under the the premise that most female perpetrated homicides um, are are completed by victims of domestic violence when their backs are against the wall in in highly um, antagonistic and violent situations, they kill. And um, research by Angela Brown, she, she wrote a book that um, interviewed women who were in prison for female perpetrated homicides, and by far that was the, the most likely scenario. And so um, now the, the, this particular research was while it used it used a cross-sectional methodology that that looked at states in the United States and and um, there, there were a lot of flaws um, in in that it took a very broad stroke and drew very specific conclusions and so um, what I did is I I took the idea of it I collected much better data and more detailed data on domestic violence um, services and. I um, use cities instead of states because it would make more sense that a shelter in Pittsburgh would affect a homicide in Pittsburgh, not a homicide in Philadelphia, um, which is, um, you know, on the other side of the state. So, so anyway, um, this particular article, um, I, I have a, a, a deep fondness for it because it really launched my career and, and it stimulated my intellectual um, curiosity in, in ways that, that uh, that still um, lead lead me to to um, conduct more research. And um, as I had mentioned earlier, um, and, and I know we'll come back to this, um, when I the first paper I wrote using this method, I found that that um, that counseling services for vic victims of domestic violence are related to more homicides of men. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so that was you know, and, and that was a little bit surprising. Um, you know, and it was it was more of a back of the envelope type of a a a, a project um, where I collected data from from directories of domestic violence services, but 
But I later um, got a grant from the National Institute of Justice to actually um, um, hire people to contact these these different um, different types of um, shelters and women's centers, as well as police departments and prosecutors' offices, to actually find out what types of resources were available later on. Um, and we and I did find mixed results. And what I found was that. Um, when we looked at married white females, um, the the resources um, had the types of relationships we would expect. It seemed to be they seemed to be more protective. But when we looked at unmarried black um, females, these services um, seemed to be more lethal than helpful. So, um, so that was a pretty um, that was a pretty compelling finding. That was a quantitative analysis looking at cities. So I couldn't really draw any causal conclusions, but it, it certainly um, got a lot of attention and, and made people really look at how these services um, treat people of different races in the United States. And, and you know, if there's not enough resources, if there's no money behind the policies that they say are in place, what, what could happen? And so it, it really highlighted the importance of making sure that, that agencies do what they say they can do, yeah. that they have to do what they say they can do it's it's fascinating findings and it's it's something when you describe it like that you can see um you can see the rationale you can see how how would be how would have that effect have you given that article to any of your grad students and asked them to try and make it better (laughs) that's an awesome thing to do i haven't because i expect them to have already read my article (laughs) yeah suppose so if they're doing their job well they will have read it all right oh it's where it influences me is that I listen to my students and I try to pay attention to what they're interested in, even if they don't know they're interested in it. Mm-hmm. And and then I would give them other articles that that you know might might actually fuel them in that sort of way. Uh, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great method to to use to try and to get people thinking and to try and get them starting uh, thinking like a researcher as a critical uh, critical reader of research. And yeah, so the, sure. the the next piece of uh, uh, the next piece of research that you put forward as influencing your career would be one that's that'll be familiar to to a number of our listeners. It's Clark mm-hmm. McCauley's piece, Jiu-Jitsu Politics, Terrorism and Response to Terrorism. So this is obviously when your career has changed, when you uh, in a it's in a post 9-11 world where you've now started uh, researching uh, terrorism. What was it about jiu-jitsu politics that uh, that influenced you and your career? Well, do, so, you know, Gary and I started the um, Global Terrorism Database, which um, also became the beginning of the National Consortium on the um, study of terrorism and response to terrorism. So the START Center that's located here at the University of Maryland. And, and one of the founders of the START Centers was um, Clark McCauley. And he and I um, spent a lot of time together um, giving talks and, you know, delivering papers. And, and, and during the period where, where he wrote this chapter, um, he talked a lot about the jiu-jitsu, the jiu-jitsu politics. And what's intriguing about that is is I come from a, well, I come from policy for sure, but I've also been a professor in criminology for quite a while. And, and the biggest, um, probably one of the, the most well-cited theory for policy is deterrence theory. And when you look at the types of, um, 
interventions that that governments do and the rhetoric that they use whenever they're addressing terrorism, it's all about getting tough on terror. You know, we, we heard about get tough on crime. Now we have to punish those who commit terror. And and, you know, 9-11, you know, when that occurred, of, of course, you know, the United States had to just bomb the crap out of everyone, including Iraq, um, which, you know, had no direct link and had no apparent direct link to, to um, what happened on 9-11. Um, and, and if we keep following this deterrence perspective, we're going to, what, what um, Clark McCauley's chapter says is we're going to get more terrorism. And so at that point, nobody had really um, empirically showed that that's what happened. There, there was a lot of qualitative evidence of it. I mean, obviously, um, the, the Al-Qaeda, while it was disseminated across the, the globe, a global jihadi was born of it, the, of, of our responses to 9-11. And so, the, so there was a lot of qualitative evidence of this. Um, and I was, in research I was doing with Gary LaFree, we were starting to, to actually do some policy analysis, which I, I haven't included in any of my articles, but we wrote an article um, looking at Northern Ireland, and I, we identified six major uh, interventions that took place there. And, and one of the big findings we had was this, that most of those efforts led to, was, were related to more terrorism, not less. They increased the risk of terrorism. And so... So we were able to empirically show, like, yeah, deterrence isn't necessarily going to work with with um, with terrorists, and and this argument that Clark McCauley makes makes sense to me. These are strategic actors, and 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 this is actually one of the reasons why I find it much more intriguing to work to study terrorism than domestic violence, um, because often in domestic violence situations, they're they're, they may be strategic, but mostly they're not. They're responding in a way that that's just they're bullies or you know or they're sociopaths. But but terrorism is strategic, and and we are this at least here in the United States, and it's true for other countries too. It's like we are in this entrenched political system that has ways that are appropriate to respond so that our politicians get more votes, and. And terrorists know that, and they know how to use that. And so, so this is something that um, um, this this chapter has never left me. It, it's it's always been something that's been in the back of my mind. And um, you'll you can see um, one of the articles that I um, included as as um, as part of my research was an article that I wrote with Clark McCauley and and. Um, Gary LaFree and Julie Hang, Wang that, that looked at um, Armenian, um, basically Armenian terrorism and, and the effects of different interventions in Armenian terrorism. But, but what, what that really talked about was how the diaspora played such an important role in influencing the behavior of the terrorist organizations. And that's something I, I don't think gets enough attention. I feel like it's, it's almost entirely ignored. Um, but it's it's starting to get a little bit of attention, and 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 that has to do with I mean this this jujitsu politic the the idea is these terrorist organizations will elicit a, a disproportionate response from a state so that innocent people are killed, and so that so that it increases the base of of um, those who want to fight against the state because of of 
of how they've treated people like them. And so, so this constituency of terrorist organizations, I feel, is so important. Um, and, I, and I think that, that um, Clark was, was really dead on in, introduce, in introducing this concept. The, the whole message that the, the terrorists use the strength of the, the state against them as a, uh, to, in order to, to get those reactions, it really, it really holds true. And what you were saying there that about um, needing, we need to understand a variety of actors, the role that a variety of actors play within terrorism. We obviously need to understand the terrorists themselves, the reaction of the state, the support base of the terrorists, whether it's diaspora support or uh, support within, uh, within the, the region where they're, they're active or they're, where they're actively fighting for. It's, um, it's, it's, it's something that, as you say, when comparing to domestic violence, like there are a lot more actors and there's a lot more uh, there there are a lot more things to consider in, in relation to this and it's um yeah it, i i also find it a, a fascinating chapter and the the final one that you you put forward has been influential for you again it's a extremely well-known piece and it's one that people yeah. keep on going back to it's uh, david rapaport's four waves of modern terrorism when did you first come across this I actually heard him give a talk about it. Um, I think it was like summer of maybe 2006 or 2007, but 2006 actually. Um, I was at a workshop on teach on how to teach terrorism, and he came and gave a talk to all the people who were attending, and he talked about this. And um, I, I was, I mean, it. it at the time when he gave the talk, it was more like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Good to know <laughs> kind of thing. Um, you know, and it, and I, I've, I've done a lot looking at different patterns of terrorism in the global terrorism database. And so, yeah, I can see that definitely is the leftist, you know, the leftist stuff was going on. And, you know, we, we see this rise of religious terrorism and all that. Um, and but but I've since um, started like teach having students read this article and I've been looking at it a lot more carefully and particularly since I'm I'm really interested I mean the heart of what I I do is I want to know what it is that we can do to reduce terrorism ultimately um, and it, there's no quick fix and there's no easy solution there but what what this article suggests is that th there there are global movements that happen simultaneously that that you know may or may not be influential of one another but they happen around the same times and what and and what, how that left me compelled is is to consider well what what's the next wave what is the next wave i mean you know sure we all have you know we're all sort of engaged in what's going on with with isil and and you know jihadi global terrorism for sure however there's also been this rise in you know white nationalism and far right extremism that that we can't ignore mm. um and this has been something you know obviously or maybe it's not obvious i've been thinking about a lot since um you know in in the more recent years here in the united states as um as our um, far right movements have been gaining momentum with um, Obama, with President Obama, with you know, with an African American president, um, and there's been a lot of pushback. And then obviously there's there's been a lot more of a rising momentum since um, Trump became a candidate, and and you know, I'm sure you you know the rest. And mm. so, 
So I've been kind of watching it, and you can see across the globe these these um, different far right movements are are getting into government, and and what does that mean when these violent extremists are getting you know having such strong influence on governments and. Um, fortunately, you know, some are, are pushing, you know, some are, are not succeeding, but, but look what happened in your own nation with Brexit. Um, that's it. You know, there's, yeah. there's this, I mean, that, that's not necessarily, I'm, I'm not saying that the proponents of Brexit are terrorists at all. I'm not saying that, but I do think we need to, to pay attention to these underlying momentums that, that, that can rise to the level of violence and have risen to the level of violence. And so I'm kind of watching that. Um, and what do you think has brought about this? Um, you talk about um, having an African-American president uh, in place across two terms. Um, but this is, as you rightly point out, this is happening internationally. And what do you think it was? Uh, what, what do you think it, it was that has influenced this? Well, one of the things that Rappaport says, and it's really subtle, but I, I picked up on it the last time I read it, um, was, and he doesn't say this explicitly, so maybe it's just my interpretation of what he says, is that um, if you look at these different waves, what seems to have given rise to the power of them were small successes. Okay. So so there was a um, trial that occurred, um, you know, way back in, you know, the late 1800s where where um, the anarchists won. <laughs> and, and that gave sort of this emboldenment of, oh, we have a chance here, right? And so, and then, and, you know, and so, so more started stepping up, like, hey, we're being heard, we're getting power, let's get more attention. Um, and so, so while there may be somewhat independence, there, there is, it does suggest that there is some influence. And so, you know, the, the, um, you know, you know, with the success of the Free Irish State, um, you know, there's there's this wave of of anti-colonialism that 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 occurred, and so with little small successes, momentum rises, and and I think that that's what we're seeing here with these um these these um, far right movements um, with the success of of Brexit, it, it I think it empowered people here in the United States. Um, I think it gave Trump more more um, power. Um, I think people who have a little hope and have a little bit of a dream see that that they're, they're, um, people like them are influencing in, in larger arenas and they step up. I mean, you've heard um, David Duke say as much. So, um, so I think that there is a contagion that's occurring. Um, and and you know I. You know, I, how it influences my work is that we need to pay attention to this um, because as we're focusing on um, trying to to stop one kind of terrorism, another kind may be rising, and it may be rising um, as as a result of our efforts to try to control one. I mean, many of these far right people are, you know, obviously um, anti-Islamic terrorism, i.e., anti-Muslim in, in many countries. Um, and so they're they're using one type of terrorism to motivate their acts of violence. Yeah, um, it, it again goes back to that that point that the way we look to to tackle uh, a problem may bring about another form of problem if we don't do it properly as well. It goes yes. goes back to what we were discussing earlier on as well. How uh, so? You were talking about 
the, the most recent time that you read the four waves of modern terrorism how often do you re, do you revisit these three articles or chapters do they are they constant within within your reading or is it just that they've they've influenced you previously well i mean the, the i haven't Honestly, I haven't um, read the Brown and Williams since I was a graduate student, so I, I kind of took off with that one. Um, so, so I it, it's is hi, obviously highly influential, but but it was more about triggering a, a career. Um, the the David Rappaport, I assigned it for a class, mm-hmm. and so I read it more recently just to um, you know just to kind of to, to freshen it up, but but also um, I, I cite it a lot, so I um, and I also cite um, Clark McCulley's chapter a lot. Um, so I have more reasons to look at those a little bit more closely. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it is. It's it's interesting though when you were when you were talking about your recently going back to the four waves and finding something as something slightly new. It's it's always so satisfying when that happens when you're reading an article again and go, oh yeah, I missed that before. That's that's great. Yeah. But, that's other people's works who's influenced you. But what I really want to concentrate on now uh, for the rest of the podcast is your own research. And obviously, we've mentioned it already. It's the it's uh, it's the the global terrorism database is probably uh, some of the most Im- one of the most influential tools, if not the most influential tool that terrorism researchers have. And you have played a central role in its development and evolution. So could you just uh, tell uh, Talk, tell our listeners about the, the first steps when setting up, getting those those cards and trying to, to code them all and get them into a, a computerized data set. What was it like setting up the GTD at the beginning? Uh, sure, sure. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. Um, we had a shoestring, shoestring budget at first, although we were able to get funding from the National Institute of Justice. <laughs> and um, we literally had, I like... I think something like 80 some boxes full of index cards and there were um, over 70,000 um, index cards that each that, and, that each gave um, key variables about a specific attack. Mm-hmm. And some of them were, I mean, originally like in the early seventies and stuff, they were quite literally index cards with numbers and each number was associated with a particular variable. So um, date, location, like the city, um, perpetrator, number of fatalities, and so on and so forth. Um, type of uh, attack, was, was it a, um, was an assassination, and what kind of weapon was used, and so forth. Um, and then after, I'd, I'd say maybe in the early 80s, they, they were Xeroxed um, sheets of, small sheets of paper that had the actual variable names that were completed. Um, and then they, so, so and there was a third one. And so what we did is we, I worked with um, our computing center here at the University of Maryland to develop an interface, a web interface, to input the information from the index card so that they go into a relational database. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we hired, um, we hired um, research assistants and we had a team of undergraduates, and then I actually um, used my research methods course. They had a choice between doing the the, the typical project I assign, or they can they can enter data into this terrorism database um, as part of their project, which turned out to be a really bad idea because um, we had to go back and, and clean all their data because 
they don't have the, you know, undergraduate people from a class don't have the same interest in quality control as somebody that we hire. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we would have, you know, we had a, a team of, of students who would enter these index cards. Now, we made copies of all of them, and now we have them in PDFs. Um, we still have the original boxes and the original index cards. That's when we discovered we were missing 1993. Yeah. Uh, really sad. Um, we did inventory on them right away and made sure we had everything, but that box was lost before we ever even got them. So um, we tried many times to recreate 1993 with, um, you know, by, by, you know, searching archives and, and, and things like that. Um, we had the marginal information and we knew we only got about 15% of those cases. So, so we, um, you know, we, we don't use them. Oh, they're available if you want them, but, but, um, we, we don't, we, we don't want those mixed in with the regular stuff because we don't people thinking that, that 1993 was an unusually low year of terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, I actually had a. Um, I, I was asked to sit on a thesis committee for somebody from another university, and the proposal went. I, I don't know if it was the proposal or the final one, but it went on and on about his finding of 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 such low counts of terrorism in 1993. Oh no! Like, no, <laughs> it's my nightmare. Oh um, no! And yeah. So, what was like? Obviously, it must have been such a frustrating time when you found out that 93 was missing. Um, but you went on then after getting all the after getting all that data inputted, uh, you've continued to update it year in, year out. And what's the process like now? How, how does that work at the moment? Well, it, it's. It, we've actually gone through four iterations, and, and, and right now it's, it's so much like a machine that I haven't been as involved. Um, we have um, Aaron Miller, who was a graduate assistant of mine in, in the early years, has become the Global Terrorism Database Manager, and so she's, she's really right now the, the muscle behind it. Um, um, but, but let me tell you about the iterations that led to that point, because mm. um, right now, well, I'll, actually, I'll tell you how it's collected now, and I'll give you a little bit of insight into the, the iterations previously. Um, what we've turned to is um, using machine learning to identify um, the cases of terrorism, um, and, it, and it's, it's a little bit more complex than that, but, but it's basically relying on a mixed method in the sense of using computer, computerized um, um, methods of identifying these cases and then having humans code them. So um, it, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty um, big endeavor, um, but we have a really great team of people who who can can manage the um, programming aspects of it. Um, what what what's important to imagine when collecting data like this is that there's a huge pipe of input. So input news stories about anything. But, but we want those news stories to, to come in, and then we need a filter that identifies those that are, have a high likelihood of being terrorism-related. And so, so this machine learning will identify them, and then we, we have humans go through and say yes or no. So they just basically um, review them, and if they say yes, then the computer uses that information to identify more cases like that. If they say no, it uses that information to to get rid of other similar cases like that. So so eventually the pipe of input in, of incoming news stories is more highly concentrated on ter uh, to be about terrorist incidents. Um, 
And then we have several teams of, of coders um, who, who focus on attributes of terrorists, of the terrorist event, as opposed to one complete terrorist event. And so we have somebody who just focuses on weapons, a team of people who just focus on weapons. We have a team of people who just focus on the perpetrator and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so um, that's what it has become. And that started in um, the end of 2011, um, and it began full, more fully in 2012. Um, and we, we just released 2016, so we're about a year behind in releasing data. Um, but but it's it's pretty impressive. And, and like I said, I've been less involved in this aspect of it um, as as it's basically had a life of its own. And, and um, Aaron Miller um, does a phenomenal job of managing all these teams of coders. Um, where it was prior to its current incarnation is we did it more the, the original collectors of the data that of those index cards that we were able to get back in um, early in, back in 2001 um, was the Pinkerton Global Intelligence um, Securities, and and they're you know a, a private securities company who who work for clients that um, that that want to know whether they can locate in different countries, and they want to know they want to have a risk assessment done. Like what what are the chances if I if we move to Colombia that one of us will be kidnapped? Okay. <laughs> So that's the kind of questions that they answered with the, these data. So um, one of the people at Pinkerton was a former student of Gary LaFree, and he, he, he approached him and said, after 9-11, and said, we have all of this information, all of these cards that document terrorist attacks from 1970 to 1997. Do you want them? And, and Gary was like, yeah, of course. This is an awesome opportunity. We can really make something of this. Um, now, after we completed the first part of computerizing all of it, and we, we supplemented um, the data with other data sets as we found them um, because, you know, it had its limits. Um, so we found out that it didn't do a great job in the United States, for instance. Um, it didn't do a great job in, in looking at um, attacks um, in Northern Ireland and in the UK, like the Irish um, Republican attacks. So we supplemented that. With, with that, we, we supplemented, um, we found another source of information from South Africa. So, so, so the global terrorism, so it became the global terrorism database from Pinkerton and some other data sets. Not long after that, that was done, we knew we needed to update the data beyond 1997. And so um, we, we um, hired um, an organization, CETUS, to do that. And, and they did it more along the lines of the original Pinkerton, not, not like what I described the current method is, um, where they, they basically scanned papers and, and databases looking for information. Like they, you know, they had a set of, of um, keywords for hits, and they would identify them, then computerize them. So, um, and, and, and they had people who focused on different parts of the globe and, and and they would hone in on, so there was a South American um, specialist who focused on South American types of terrorism and so forth. Um, and, and they, the CETUS, um, they started working, I believe, in 2005, and they brought, around 2007, 2008, they were able to operate in, in real time. And so, so from 1998 through 2007, the data was all collected retrospectively. So if, if you think about it, um, as Pinkerton was collecting the data, the attacks were happening in real time, and so they had prospective data collection 
We currently have prospective data collection, um, even though we release it a year late. Mm. Um, but from 1998 to 2007, it was retrospective. And so we know we're missing cases and we're constantly trying to, to find more events during that period. Um, so every, every year when we release data, we update the, the earlier years. Um, and then we hired um, another group, um, I, ISVG, to collect the, the real-time data from 2008, I believe, until the end of 2011. And so theirs was was prospective as well, um, but but in two thousand at the end of two thousand eleven we decided to bring it in house and we decided to work using um, more sophisticated um, computer technology um, programming technology that 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 was as I described. Mm. So so it's important that users and I've written about this quite a bit. It's important that users understand the four iterations of collection so that they can basically control for those when they're using the data to analyze because, you know, if, if their interventions that they're studying happened in 1998, they're going to see a big drop in terrorism. It's not necessarily because of their intervention. Yep. <laughs> There's always going to be a drop in terrorism during that period, no matter how you slice it. Um, I always control for the collection period when I analyze um, any, you know, analyze the data. And, and this is, this is pr one of the key lessons, one of the key the key things that people should should think about it's not just okay i've got the data let's analyze it you need to understand the process that went behind it the different stages the different iterations and it's uh it's vitally important and you don't always see that no matter how much you write about it no matter how much you say this is the way to use it there are articles that come out that don't respect it in that way what other I advice would you give would you give users of the gtd at the moment Oh, I would tell them to read all the documentation. We, we work very hard to be transparent. Read anything that's written um, by the developers, by us, that describe the limitations of the data. Um, particularly pay attention to collection periods. I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, I'm actually going to, I'm working on um, an article with Gary to, that looks at different ways you can method, methodologically accommodate the data depending on whether terrorism is your independent or dependent variable. Um, but, but be smart users for sure. Um, don't just understand where the data come from, understand the limitations of the different collection periods, know that we're missing some cases, know that we're missing some cases because they're media reports. So, so the media may not have reported or it, the media may, the, the media may have been reported, but we didn't capture it. Um, but also you got to respect the data because it's the best that's out there. Yeah. I mean, I, clandestine organizations use our data because they don't have the resources to collect their own. Um, they know what's going on in areas where they focus their attention, mm -hmm. but they don't know what's going on in areas where they don't focus their attention. So, so this is a good resource for them to, to, you know, kind of get a sense of what's going on in the world, but, but they also know the limitations of it. And is there like we you're talking about whether the media picks it up or not? And is there any specific are there any countries that stand out for you or any regions where where you where you feel that the media isn't really picking up uh, as much as as is possibly going on? And therefore that users of the GTD should be wary about data relating to those countries or regions? Well, I'm, I'm now looking it up. But last time I looked. Um, I say this all the time, and I don't know if it's still true, but I'm looking it up. Mm. 
um, that that the GTD only reports one terrorist attack in North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, is it because there was only one terrorist attack in North Korea or is it because... Um, they have a very good CT program there in North Korea, I'm sure. I'm sure. So I'm actually... Uh, so we have this awesome website. I included the link to it. Yeah, there's only one incident. 1994, where there were three fatalities. Um, yeah, so... And and so is that true? And so I mean that I, I use that as an example to to you know really raise suspicion. Um, is there really no resistance at all in North Korea? Maybe there isn't. We know so little about it. But but we what we do know is that the global press is not in North Korea. So so um, well the global press is is seems to be everywhere, which is really good news. Um, it, you know, it focuses on things that are going to get attention. And so another thing is that, you know, there's a lot of conflict in Africa. Um, and, and, you know, we had to work hard to supplement what was going on in South Africa because the global news at the time during the apartheid government wasn't, wasn't capturing everything. Um, so, well, you know, I, I wrote a paper that, that I'm sure we'll get to about, you know, Erica Chenoweth and I wrote about what was going on in Israel. Um, you know, we, the, we collected data for using Reuters News where we feel, we know we're missing stuff when anytime you do open source, but everybody was paying attention to what was going on in Israel. Yeah. So, so we really feel like the data in Israel is pretty good. Now looking at, you know, the ter global terrorism database, it, you know, Global Terrorism Database is one source of information on what was going on in, in Israel, but other people have, have used other data from Israel, and they have a lot more terrorist attacks than, than what we've recorded. Um, why is that? Well, you know, we've, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say. So I would just tell users to be skeptical, mm. um, understand the data, look at other sources, do comparisons, um, be transparent, but also appreciate it because this is what we have. Um, be cautious and draw strong, conclu strong conclusions, as you would with any data. Um, but that's what we find with social science in general. Um, social science is, is you know, we qu quantitative data and qualitative data collected in social science captures the behaviors, you know, imperfectly of people. <laughs> which changes all the time. Yeah. So, and the, I mean, these are key lessons, as you said, not just if you're using the GTD and not just if you're using quantitative data. It's no matter what the data is you're using, you need to understand the data. You need to respect it and understand its strengths and weaknesses. It's, uh, uh, you have to constantly be critically engaging with it. And you, you mentioned that article with Erica Chenoweth, uh, who will also be appearing on this podcast soon. I'm actually interviewing her tomorrow. And oh. both of you have uh, have highlighted this this paper that you did together, a really fascinating paper. And I think we should we should move on to it now, and we can continue the GTD discussion as well, because GTD does pop up in in both of the other um, as a, in both of the other articles you've you've put forward as as a as a data source that you use. But could you explain to the listeners what was the thinking behind this article with Erica, moving beyond deterrence, the effectiveness of raising the expected utility of abstaining from terrorism in Israel? What was the what was the influence for it, and what did the 
what did the article go uh, and what were you trying to what were you trying to analyze well the influence there were so many influences behind this article um two you know two i've already mentioned which is um Clark McCauley's Jiu-Jitsu Politics, um, but also um, the paper that I did with Clark McCauley and others on um, the Armenian um, terrorism in the 80s. Um, and and um, combined, um, what those articles were basically saying is that deterrence, you know, I, I, I already at this point have been convinced that deterrence is not really, does not really work. Mm-hmm. Um, I had mentioned the paper I did on Northern Ireland with Gary LaFree and Raven Corte, um, where we found that, that these efforts by the British government seemed to result in more terrorism, not less. Um, so so this, this concept of moving beyond ter- deterrence is pretty important. Um, Erica and I, we, we had met in 2008 at a um, start meeting, and we, we had actually talked about this very issue of we need better data to measure what governments do other than just their bully behavior, the big publicized um, interventions that, that we all know about. And in the Northern Ireland paper that I talked about, it it looks at those big interventions. We identified six key interventions that occurred that everybody knows about and everybody has written about. We were interested in what are the more subtle things that governments do that might actually not be so much repressive, but even more conciliatory. Um, and so, so in 2008, we might've met in 2007, I'm not sure, but, but the idea was we wanted to collect a data set that, that captured all of that. And so we, we wrote a proposal and got funding to do that. Um, we call it government actions and terror environments, and um, Israel was one of the first data sets that we we completed, and it was from um, 1998 to 2004. And what what it what it was able to capture are are a lot more of the subtle activities by the Israeli government that included um, fully conciliatory to fully repressive. Um, and what we did is we just dichotomized that their actions as either conciliatory or repressive, but we also paid attention, and this is where the um, Armenian paper has had an influence, we pay attention to who's affected by these actions. Do, do these government actions only affect those who are, are perpetrators of terrorism or suspected of perpetrators of terrorism, or do they affect Palestinian civilians? And and, you know, and, and when we laid out this idea of if civilians are affected, then they're either going to, if, if, if the action by Israel is, is, is repressive, they're going to actually, you know, have more compassion for the terrorist organizations than the Israeli cause. Um, whereas if it's more conciliatory, they're not going to have as much, much um, interest in supporting terrorism. Um, and, and we're not saying that Palestinian civilians are terrorists at all. These are people who want to live their lives, and they want to live their lives in peace, and they want to be able to to support their families. Um, but they are affected by Israeli's actions when those actions, you know, are are indiscriminate. And so, so we basically had had laid out this paper. The ideas behind these papers, we were collecting the data, and we were able to collect the data um, with the help of of um, a program written by Phil Schrote. Um, that is able to basically take a pipeline of, of, we relied on Reuters news sources. We looked at every Reuters news article that mentioned Israel, 
Um, we used his program Tabari to identify the politically relevant ones, and then we filtered it down to um, actions by the Israeli governments where Palestinians were the targets, and we had um, research assistants um, then code them. And we ended up with about 6,000 events that, that um, between this period, which we combined into, which we used to create our independent variables to look at this. And so, so, um, so we're really asking the bigger question of, of is, is there something else we can do? And why are we so focused on deterrence? Particularly because deterrence doesn't necessarily seem to work. And it doesn't mean that, that it doesn't work sometimes. And, and we broke up the paper in enough ways to show, like, there was some evidence that that um, during the, I believe it was during the Oslo law period, during the period, during the time where there was the peace talks, um, sp when we had specific deterrence or discriminate deterrence or discriminate repression, toward, so basically when Israel was tough on terrorists during that period, there was less terrorism. And that's interesting and that's good, worth knowing. Um, but for the most part, anytime there was repression, when we found an effect, um, it was it it was associated with more violence, not less, more Palestinian terrorism, and not less. And one um, one of the really interesting findings I found uh, in reading this article is when you look at the conciliatory um, responses by uh, the Israeli state that it's it's most effective when it's happening in large numbers where there's multiple and consistent conciliatory uh, activity rather than sporadic. Um, yes. Could you explain this? Why do you, uh, why did you and Erica believe that this was taking place? Well, I mean, what's exciting about this is that we actually modeled it in a way, um, in a way that was non-parametric. So we would allow, we let the data show us what the shape of the effect was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and we did that because we didn't want to presume it was linear um, for, for lots of good reasons. Now, this particular finding came up repeatedly. And, you know, what, what that means to me and how I interpret this, and again, it's post hoc interpretation. It's not, a, um, it's not derived from a hypothesis, but my post hoc interpretation is that, that if, if a government is going to to, to behave in a way that's conciliatory, they need to be consistent. Not too indifferent from, not too dissimilar from my earlier work with domestic violence services. If, if they're going to work, if they want to appease the, consti the constituency of terrorist organizations, they need to be consistent, they need to give a clear message, and they need to, um, to, to, to not just do a one-shot deal. There needs to be substance behind it. That, that's my interpretation of it. Now, um, you know, I think that more qualitative research is needed to, to, to look at that more thoroughly. Um, fortunately, this, this data set is very rich, so we're able to look at the actual specific actions, not just the tabulation of them, which is what, what was shown in this article. Um, but that's, that's really what I think is going on, and I think it's an important policy implication um, in, in, in the work that I do. It, it, so it's another one of those lingering things that, that I have. I think it's really important that we reach out to people who are vulnerable to being recruited by terrorist organizations, and I think we need to listen to their grievances. And I think that, that, that we need to listen and respond in a way that's consistent and compelling and incredible, not just paying lip service to them and then, and then behaving a little bit differently. Um, it it so all goes back to this this whole issue that 
are they can they trust you can they trust uh, what's been said and if if there is that consistency there that you can strengthen uh, st- strengthen that trust in okay they're actually here to help us in a way so you've said that this article was influenced by your armenian article with uh, with uh, Gary Lafree, Clark Macaulay, and Julie Wang, uh, how did could you give the listeners a background into into that article as well? Um, what what was what were the data that you were using there, uh, and what were the questions that you were asking? And a bit, as I, I suppose, a lot of our listeners wouldn't really know much about Armenian terrorism, so a bit of context right, as well, right. maybe. Right. So so um, this particular article was really exciting because. Um, it it used a mixed methods approach in the sense that um, Clark and Julie um, worked on a case study of of um, of Armenian um, Asala, which is the Armenian um, Army for the Liberation of Armenia, and um, JCAG, which is the Justice Commandos of the Armenian Genocide. And so these are two organizations that were active in the early '80s, and um, they basically. Um, did a case study on their influence on their, their dependency on the Armenian diaspora. Now, these organizations existed in order to, um, to the, their goals were basically to get Turkey to acknowledge and apologize for the Armenian genocide um, in, in the early 1900s, 1915. And, um, and they, they had a set of things that they wanted to do, um, but they went about it in two different ways. And Asala basically was was this big renegade organization that that perpetrated terrorist attacks across the globe um, you know blowing up um, anything Turkish basically um, so they, they basically targeted Turks Turkish people across the globe whereas um, JCAG was more strategic and they did assassinations political assassinations of, of um, Turkish people um, and so the Armenian diaspora was like, you know, these people are fighting for us, you know, we want to, you know, they're, they're, they, they were the heroes, and they didn't really see them as terrorists at all, because they, they felt like their activities were justified. Then, um, in, um, I believe it was 1983, I, I, I can't remember the, the exact year, um, um, us, Asala um, bombed the Orly airport, and killed a lot of people, none of whom were Turks, I don't believe any were, and, and that was a sudden wake-up call for the Armenian diaspora, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, these were innocent people. This was an act of terror. Um, and, and so the, the, the hypothesis behind this was that that, well, the case study looked at what happened within um, Asala and what happened with the, the, in the newspapers of the Armenian diaspora during this period where they, they really tried to distance themselves. And, um, and JCAG also lost its power and its, its, its um, support from the diaspora and terrorism suddenly, Armenian terrorism just dropped. Um, and these groups disbanded eventually. Um, and so, and we tested that empirically and, and sure enough, um, Yes, the early airport um, was a turning point, and and you know terrorism did plummet. That was that was the big thing. Um, so was it because you know the, of infighting within um, Asala, or or was it you know the withdrawal of the diaspora? You know we couldn't test that causally, but but I'm pretty convinced it was because of the withdrawal of the diaspora. And so 
And, and again, th these diaspora are not people who support terrorism. These are people who want to live their lives, but they obviously have some important grievances. Um, and so, so, you know, and that's, that's something that stuck with me because I had not read anything else or seen anything else where people were talking about the constituencies of these terrorist organizations. Now, Clark McCauley talks about it a lot, and he says, you know, you know, you have to pay attention to who the audience is of these attacks. Sure, the audience, we know the audience is, is the government, for sure, and the public, but, but, but what about the people to, for whom these people fight? That's the, audi that's the important audience. And, um, you know, I, I could have also added articles by, by Martha Crenshaw, which have also been influential, where, where she shows that, that without, you know, without that type of support, Without the people who support them, you know, they, they, the terrorist organizations need a continual pool of people from whom to recruit. And so without that, a terrorist organization will lose its momentum. And so, so that's, that's how we went into the, um, the, the Moving Beyond Deterrence paper and why we collected the gate data and why we felt it was so important to measure indiscriminate actions and, and identify who was affected by these actions. Because, you know, if you think about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of need, if somebody's, if somebody's, you know, if, if somebody's shelter is affected by, by a government, they're going to, they're going to fight. They're going to, they're going to join the people who are trying to protect them. The other thing worth pointing out is that the Palestinians during this period and, and still today, you know, they're behaving like a government and they're providing social services to to the um, Palestinian civilians, whereas Israel, for the most part, isn't. They provide some support, but not a lot of support. And the Palestinian, you know, terrorist organizations are really good at using propaganda against Israel. Um, and and so and so this 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 act the the, the we talk about dyadic measures of terrorism because it's the government and the terrorist organization, but it's a lot more than just those two. Yeah. And so I, I really think that this paper, while it may not have gotten a lot of attention, my experience of having worked on it was very profound to me. And it, it's something that, um, and, and having worked with um, Clark McCulley, um, and I, you know, we're still in touch today, um, his work has influenced me quite a bit. He's a really good thinker. He's he's a he's a great thinker, a great researcher, and like yeah. I I think the key message that's coming across from these two articles is if that you're in order to be able to understand how to counter terrorism, it's not just about countering the terrorists. It's about understanding who they claim to represent and what those communities, what they are seeking, and why they may support and why they might withdraw support. It's the the Armenian example, the Asala and JCAG example, it's just, it's, it's such a dramatic example when you see it uh, just quantified there that after that early attack, that both groups um, lost support and they, their activity almost uh, pretty much ceased then. Why did you feel, looking at those, that Armenian example, that even though this was a purely Asala attack, that it also affected JCAG? Well, I mean, it, that's actually kind of a mystery. I mean, it, it, it may be, that, which is probably one of the reasons terrorism research is challenging, because mm -hmm. um, we don't have insight into a lot of these things. But, but it may be that 
it, I mean, JCAG wasn't as dependent on the Armenian diaspora as Asala was. Um, but it, but it may be without the diaspora supporting the cause, they, they just didn't have the momentum. Um, they, they, you know, may not have, they may have felt guilt by association, um, where the act of, of the terrorist attack against the early airport was so traumatic that, that, that they didn't want to be associated with, with this particular cause. I, I don't know. I really don't know. Um. It's in, in criminology, and I see you have criminology background, um, you know, we talk about, um, with deterrence, we talk about the diffusion of benefits for an intervention. And it may be, even though the early airport was obviously not an intervention, yeah. um, right? It was, a, 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 I think, a misstep. Um, it was a poor choice by this organization. But, but this idea of diffusion of benefits is that if an intervention would have a, a bleeding effect um, to stop crime elsewhere. So, so if if there's like a um, intervention that's taken place on a corner bar, it may be that the drug activity in other areas also ceases because of concerns that 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 they too are at risk. So, um, it could be that 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 there's a bleeding effect, um, a diffusion effect that that also affected. Um, I mean, it, it obviously seems to have been triggered um both of these seem to be triggered by that orly event yeah. it, it it reminds me actually from like a lot of my research is focused on northern ireland it it, it strongly reminds me of the oma bombing of the late 1990s that mm. is it had such a dramatic effect on the support for the real ira and dissident republican uh, groups all over not just the real ira who were seen to be responsible for it but also the continuity ira as well that it that these missteps uh, can affect not just the the immediate perpetrator, but but those who can be seen to be associated with something similar as well. Um, it, I, like I found it a really fascinating article. There are n- numerous facets to it when you're comparing the groups. How Asala had a leadership which was reliant a lot on a cult of personality versus. Uh, something quite different in JCAG, um, how the financing uh, was different, the financing of Asala through uh, extortion, whereas with JCAG it was, it was much more uh, much more organized. Well, there are numerous facets to it that you could, that could be research projects in, in their own right as well. And I think it's, it's, so, it's an article I would definitely recommend uh, all of our listeners to, uh, to, to have a look at. Um, I've realized that we've we're, we've uh, been talking or I've taken a, a good bit of your time here. So I, I want to sort of I want to sort of wrap up the interview now by it's something that I ask all of our all of all of our guests here. And it's it's going back to that debate that started a couple of years ago by an article from Mark Sageman about whether there is stagnation in uh, terrorism research or not. And you had those for and against it. Um, what do you feel at the moment? What do you feel outside of your research? Um, how do you feel uh, the state of uh, terrorism research is today? Well, I actually think it's, it's, it's a, I don't think there's stagnation. I think it's a very exciting time um, to, to do research in this area. I think that, um, I think that terrorism research is still in its infancy. Um, the, I mean, even though there's been many, many years of it, it's only become more um, systematic in in recent decades. Um, I think that a, a lot of different people with different skills have come in and they're working together, which is really important. I think um, 
I, I, in order to get to, to really understand what's what's going on, we need all kinds of research in this area, and we needed to be smart research. We needed to be um, looking. We need interviews with terrorists. We need people who who talk to others to find out what's going on. We need quantitative people like myself who work with qualitative people, um, and I think that's happening. Um, I. I mean, one of my goals, as as I mentioned, that began with the conversation with Erica back in 2007 or 2008, is to to collect measures on what governments do, because we had such a one-sided assessment of what was happening, and we didn't really understand what what governments do, um, in order to do that. And I and we're making a lot of progress in that area, and with the advancement of different types of computer technologies that'll make it more efficient to collect these types of data. Um, I think that there's a lot more on the horizon that we'll be able to do. Um, so, no, I don't think it's stagnant at all. Um, I think it's really an exciting period. I think that um, there are a lot of really good thinkers. Um, the, the, critical crim the critical terrorism studies is an important area where, where people are coming together and really looking critically. At, at, it's actually assessing the that what are we what are other terrorism researchers saying and how what kind of mistakes are we making because um so, so we have a self-examination component of this type of research um what kind of assumptions are we making and moving forward with without even investigating what we're saying and so you know were we just labeling everything terrorism without really looking at what's going on so so it's terrorism is a complex problem and you know i i use the word a lot um but but you know, it has different meanings in different settings, um, and not everybody will look at the same event and call it terrorism. And so I think it's important that, that we include the broad strokes of, of assessing what's going on, but also understand the nuances behind it in order to, to reduce the risk of it across the globe and in different contexts. So, so uh, no, I don't think terrorism research is stagnant, but I do think that we need to challenge each each other and challenge ourselves. Um, I do think that there is some some research out there that that um, you know is more ideological mm -hmm. um, and and doesn't you know doesn't really um, is, is more about getting because because it's a topic that many people have strong opinions about that aren't researchers. Um, I think there's a temptation to cater to them and to to get a lot of attention, and and that's dangerous. Um, I've read some I've read some things which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name that that I think was more about getting um, selling books than it was about actually doing a critical assessment of what's going on, um, which is a problem I think we just have today in general, uh, um, in in many different areas. Um, but I think that if we keep doing what is next on our research agendas and, and keep listening to and reading other people's work so that we can do better and, and get more deeper um, in understanding the nuances of this. Then and, then and then we have governments that are actually listening to what we have to say. And so if we could get the evidence-based researchers to the research to the decision makers, um, which I do think happens. I mean, th th what's, you know, maybe not in the United States these past few months, but but I do think that, that decision makers do hear us. I do think that the people in work in agencies that have to make decisions on a daily basis do read the research. Um, 
then I think, you know, we, we need to keep moving forward. And I, I think with organizations, with centers like START and, and other, other centers like that, there are, there are great opportunities there to, to really engage with some of the some world-class researchers and their work. And, and that's actually been one of the aims of this podcast, is to highlight to, to people, whether they're early career researchers in the field or whether uh, they've been researching for a long time, it's, it is difficult to get around to, to reading everyone's research and to, to finding out what's going on. But it's, it's hopefully an opportunity to highlight some of the, the great research that is being done. To finish up, though, if you were to, do you feel that there's any unanswered questions that, we, we, that should be tackled next, that should be the, the next key questions to ask? Um, well, I can tell you where I'm putting my attention, and that's really at understanding the relationship between um, the messages given by, by government officials, their actions, and the responses to those actions by um, constituencies and, and, and those who commit violent acts. Um, this is obviously, it, it, it's something that I've been doing um, all along, but I think it's more important to get at, at more of the nuances of this. I've been working with Erica and some others to collect data on, on um, verbal messages by governments, and, and this seems more relevant today in yeah. the age of social media and Twitter. Um, but but to really look at those those messages and how they relate to the actions and and those responses, um, and again this is something that is important to do both quantitative and qualitative. We went we went to Israel a number of years in 2014 to interview um, people who work in government about about what how they think the importance of rhetoric is and the messages that that are given and how that may have an influence on their counterterrorism policies. And we've got a lot of important insights that we'll be writing about. Um, so um, that that's where my focus is, and and I feel like, you know, I'm looking at just a small part of this bigger issue, this bigger problem. But I'll, I'll do my best to read what others have been doing, so that I can can see what the interviews by terrorists have to say, um, because that's obviously very important. And and interviews um, that are take of constituencies. Um, we are I'm working with some people to apply for a grant to to interview people in um, Colombia. Okay. Because, you know, they're going through this period of ceasefire um, and, and to interview them and, and the, but people both in the government and then also civilians and, and people who were associated with FARC to find out like what their perceptions are over this period of time of conflict and, and reconciliation. So or, or not reconciliation, but but peacemaking. Um, and, and so so I, I feel like um, while conflicts have their unique context. That, that cannot necessarily be generalized in other places, we do find insight that, that may be able to be generalized. And so I continue, we continue to collect gate data and to, to do analyses in different countries and have, you know, identify overall findings across locations and then ones that are specific to different types of um, conflicts. And, and hopefully, um, hope, you know, I, I feel like these efforts need to continue so that, that, um, we can make sense of what might work and what might not work. Brilliant. Well, it sounds like fascinating research and we all look forward to, to seeing it come out. And I'm sure you'd be, uh, you'd be delighted if someone decided to have a full project to try and find out about all the terrorism in 1993 as well, to resolve that issue as well uh, oh, going absolutely. forward. But I would, 
Uh, I would just like to to thank you, Laura, for for all the time you've given on today's podcast. It's been it's been fascinating, and I could I could talk to you for hours about your research. It's been it's been highly influential on on my career and and others uh, other people's careers listening in. I'm sure. Um, so thank you thank you so much for that. Um, for anyone who's interested in reading any of the research that was referred to in today's episode, it's all on our website. That's uel.ac.uk forward slash t e or c. Uh, and be sure to follow us on Twitter as well, um, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. That's all we have for today. Uh, I'd like to once again thank Laura and to thank Jamie Murray for editing today's podcast, and be sure to tune in next week um, for our next guest. Okay, thanks very much. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you found my talk with Professor Laura Dugan both interesting and informative. I'm sure you know a bit more about Armenian terrorism than you did before listening in today. Next week, I'll be sitting down and talking to Dr. Sarah Marsden from the University of Lancaster. We'll be talking about how the works of John Horgan, Shad Maruna and Andrew Silk have influenced her career. And we'll be concentrating on her own research, research that looks at reintegration of extremists, conceptualizing of success for those convicted of terrorism offences, and barriers to reintegration. And finally, social movement theory typology of militant organizations. It's a, it's a, it's a, a chat that I believe m- many of you will find both interesting and worthwhile. So I hope that you tune back in next week. Okay, bye.